or friends who have recently bought a house or got a car or had kids and how they've totally changed since they made those big life decisions and they're typically acting um, in the stereotypical sitcom parents way where they're cheesy, they're making dad jokes. And Progressive always closes it with Progressive can't protect you from becoming your parents, but we can protect your house, home, whatever. I thought it was funny how that brought to my mind because, or that came to my mind because in Ephesians, it's telling us that we want to be imitators of God. It's something that we should desire to do and something that we should work towards. And in all honesty, I, I would be okay, or I am okay, I don't really have a choice, in being an imitator of my own parents. I'm okay with that because they are godly, um, Christ-loving people. And that's something that Paul is pushing us towards, being godly, Christ-loving people. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be be even named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In this passage, Paul is giving us two commands. He's telling us to walk in love and to walk in light. So what does it mean? What does it mean to walk in love? That's the one we'll start with. Ephesians 1 has, we've seen, has said to be imitators of God as beloved children and to walk in love. And this is what it means. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This isn't anything new that Paul has talked about, that we are to walk in love, that we are children of God, beloved children of God. In Ephesians 1.5, right at the beginning of this book, he says that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God has adopted us as children, and in adoption, the children that are adopted are just like family. I have two siblings that were adopted, and I don't see anything different between them and my biological brother. They are a family just like those that are related by blood are a family. 
And what Craig talked about last week, it's, this is building upon what Craig talked about last week, that we put off sin and put on, un, unri- or put on righteousness, not unrighteousness, put on righteousness. Um, he's calling us to live as sons of God, to walk in love with Christ and to follow his example of laying down our lives for the sake of others. Moms are known for putting aside the things that they want to do for the sake of their children. And Christ did that for us. He put aside his own life so that he would be a sacrifice for our sins. He lived out his love as an action, not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling. Love is carried out, biblical love is carried out through action. In chapter 4, verse 17, Paul specifically writes, to walk not as the Gentiles do, and carries that thought on and says to walk in love. And when we walk, we avoid what will harm us. A few, uh, like a couple months ago, before all the social distancing, I went disc golfing, um, which is golf with frisbees, um, with Thomas and his wife, Becca, and we kept laughing because I, I was recording my score on my phone, and there was probably three or four times when my foot either went right by a hole in the ground, or one time it went perfectly in a hole in the ground where I, if, it, if it had been imperfect, I probably would have broken my ankle. My whole foot went in the ground. Um, I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't walking to avoid the things that that would harm me. Or in adventure movies, we see them running and they're avoiding things um, like quicksand, which I really thought as a child would be a more prevalent issue in my life because of movies and video games, but it's not. I've never actually seen quicksand. Or our dog, Riley, uh, is is part mini Australian shepherd, and they're very anxious dogs, and she, and it's wildly irrational, but there's those drains on the side of the road in Golden Hills, and she will purposefully avoid these harmless drains. She'll drag me to the middle of the street because she thinks it's a danger. She's walking in such a way that she avoids what is going to harm her. And walking in love means the active avoidance of things that will harm us. It's an active, thoughtful walk. It's not something where we're not paying attention, we're not looking both ways before we cross the street. It's intentional thoughtful actions. And because it's active and thoughtful, Paul gives us some dangers to avoid as we walk. The first is this. It's three, it's actually three different sins. The first of those sins is this. It's in verse three. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Sexual immorality, that's That's anything sexual outside of a committed marriage relationship of any kind. Anything sexual that is not directed towards your spouse. It's exactly what Paul, or what Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, that even lustfully looking at someone is adultery. Just a hint of sexual sin is still sexual sin. And these types of of sins are only getting worse with our increased access to the internet. In our increased social distancing, it's only getting worse. Sexual impurity was tolerated in Roman society, in 
it's tolerated or even endorsed today in American society. It's normalized. It's, it's something that is joked about, laughed about, um, shown in movies, on TVs, and in, in even in interpersonal relationships. And impurity is, is also coupled with sexual immorality to Paul. He always puts it together, and he's telling us that we must be completely pure. And that brings us to verse 4. It, this is the second, or the third sin. Oh, I skipped covetous, covetousness. The second sin that Paul talks about is covetousness, which he equates later on to idolatry. When we want what God hasn't given to us, when we incredibly desire something that God has not given to us, it's showing that we're putting our own desires before God, and we're lifting these things up so that they become idols. And that brings us to verse 4, the third sin, which Paul talks about. It says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, and this is something to replace our crude joking and our, our foolish talk with, let there be thanksgiving. James 3 expands on this way more than Paul does. It paints an incredible picture of the tongue, that the tongue controls a person like a bit, like a horse bit controls a horse, or like a small rudder, a tiny little rudder controls a large ship. The tongue controls us. It's a small part of our body, but it does incredible things in our lives. In James 3, verse 6, it says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set against, or set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Our tongues reveal who we are and what controls us. And today, in modern society, if Paul wrote this today, I'm convinced that he would have also mentioned thumbs or hands as we say whatever we want in, an, in even in anonymous ways on the internet. We have un, or, there's an unbelievable access to share our opinions on Twitter, on Facebook, and the difference between our thumbs and our tongue is that the internet is forever. The NFL draft was a couple weeks ago, and every single year, there's one prospect, one athlete, who gets raked over the coals because something, because of something he tweeted seven, eight, ten years ago that was uh, derogatory. It was, it puts him in a bad light and shows their heart, e either at that point or their heart now. Our society today has no grace in those situations, even though, and I'm not saying that those things are okay, but that was seven plus years ago. I've changed tremendously in the last seven years. I can't imagine some of the things that I would have said if those got brought up, how I would look. But that shows how quickly our tongues can destroy our lives. 
it's because that's how people get to know us. It gives people a glimpse at who we are. I mean, the Bible is God's revealed word. He reveals himself to us in words that were shared, that are shared by talking, by repeating them to each other. Foolish talk reveals who we are to other others. Filthy talk is in defiance of social and moral standards, and it results in disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. And this behavior, Paul says to us, is out of place among believers. What is good among believers is thanksgiving. We should fill the, the void that is there when we take away the foolish and the crude joking, and we should fill that void with thanksgiving, both to each other and to the Lord. All of these sins are not proper among the saints. We're called to be holy and pure, and there should be no impurity among us. And why is that? Why should there be no impurity among us? Well, it brings us back to verse 1, that we are imitators of God. And God, in God, 1 John 1, 5 says, there is no darkness. There is not even a hint of sin in God. He is 100% light. He is 100% purity and holiness. When we act in this way, when we talk in this way, we're showing the darkness that is still in us. We are not imitators of God, even though we call ourselves Christians. We're not being imitators of Jesus Christ. That word Christian came about because it was, it was almost a derogatory term towards Christians, saying that we were little Christs, which for us, that's the highest compliment we could get. One of my, one of my cousins, when she was in high school at a, at a small, or not a small, but a, at a private Christian school in the superlatives in the yearbook got, got the, and I don't think this is a good idea to have in a yearbook, but got the reward for being most Christ-like, and that became the bane of her existence with her brothers. Anytime she got in trouble, they'd be like, most Christ-like. But, but there's a reason that the term Christian outside of Christian circles, and even sometimes inside Christian circles, is synonymous with the word hypocrite. Some people probably use that in the same way that we talk about the Pharisees from the New Testament, that we say we are supposed to be one thing, and then we do another thing. We say we're this way, but our actions and our words show that we're a different way. Ultimately, that's showing the truth that's in Scripture, that we aren't fully righteous yet, that it's something that we're working towards. It's part of that sanctification process, that process of becoming more righteous and becoming more like Christ. It's like saying, it's like saying that you're a fan of something, but never actually watching or partaking in something. If someone said they were a fan of Marvel movies but didn't know who Captain America was, we would know that they're not actually a fan of Marvel movies. If someone says they're a Christian but doesn't read the scriptures, doesn't work towards becoming more like Christ, it's a pretty good sign that they're not actually a Christian. Sin also isn't proper among the believers because it it breaks the unity of the church. Paul has been talking about endlessly the unity of the church. And when we sin against one another, we're breaking that unity. The, this command to walk in love and to avoid these sins is followed by two severe warnings that are intended to motivate us. 
They're severe because these sins are nearly impossible for us to control. And we need these severe warnings to understand the gravity of what these sins do in our lives. In verse 5, we see the, verse, the first um, warning. Chapter 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. He's not declaring that anyone who commits these sins is excluded from God's heavenly kingdom. What he's saying is those that commit these persistently and unrepentantly have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, that we abuse God's grace in the way that we persistently and unrepentantly sin and even subconsciously or actively think, oh, God will forgive me. This is why Christ died on the cross, right? To forgive me of the sin that I can't control. But for mature believers, for true believers, I would say, we recognize that that's not what God's grace is for. God's grace is so that we can confess our sins to him, so that we can come and repent and turn away from our sins. That word repentance means a 180 degree turn, and that is shown most vividly in the life of Paul, the author, the writer of this letter to the Ephesians. He was living one way, murdering and hating, <coughs> hating Christians before he repented of his sins, before Christ came to him on the road to Disma Damascus. And then afterwards, it was a 180-degree turn where he went from trying to squash Christianity to bringing others and sharing the gospel and making more believers. The people that Paul is talking about here persistently are in this sin. They do not repent from—they do not truly repent from this sin. We are continually battling with sin until we are made new in Christ. But we also recognize as believers that we—that there is sin in our lives. 1 John 1, 6 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We are deceiving ourselves when we think, I probably didn't sin today. I'm pretty good. I did a good job. We're deceiving ourselves and showing that we don't truly understand Scripture and ourselves. We are known by our fruits, Paul is saying. And when we are caught up in persistent and unrepentant sin, we're showing that the fruit of the Spirit is not in us. And that's speci another specific example that he uses is covetousness, which he calls idolatry. One commentator <clears throat> described it this way. He says though, that those who are covetousness, who are, who are covetous with idolatry, say that they, are, um, they have a strong desire to acquire for themselves more and more money and possessions. And I would also throw in power and authority because they love and trust and obey wealth rather than God. And that's modern idolatry. When we hear idolatry, we think of the golden calf, right? But for us today, it's possessions, it's things, it's, it's reputation, it's followers, likes. Modern idolatry today has a lot to do with recognition. And if you want a deeper understanding of the foolishness of idolatry, 
we should read Isaiah 44 that describes in depth the process of idolatry that man creates this thing, he, he gets a piece of wood or whatever, creates a thing, and then says, this is my God. This thing that I just made is my God, and I'm going to worship it. And today we look at things that are created by man and lift them up and, and maybe not ver- verbally say it, but in our hearts we say, this is the thing that is ultimate in my life. This is the thing that brings me true joy and will make my life complete. Anything we value above God is idolatry. And Paul includes this in other lists of sins that, that he has in the other letters that he's written. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, we see it. In Galatians 5, 19 to 21, he says it. And in Galatians, he specifically says that these same sins are the works of the flesh, and call, he calls them evident. When we think of, when I say the word sin in your life, every single one of us thinks of a specific sin. Our sin is evident in our own lives, and if you feel like there is no evident sin in your life, you need to go and pray to God to reveal that sin to you. And we'll talk more about that, this process at the end. That brings us to the second warning. The first was there's no inheritance in the kingdom of God, and the second is that the wrath of God is coming. Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is yet another pretty motivating reason to avoid these sins. That upon the people who are the sons of disobedience, he says, not children of God, but the sons of disobedience, the wrath of God is coming. And it may not be in our lifetimes, it may be after our lifetimes, but at some point, the wrath of God is coming for those who deliberately sin. We cannot be deceived by those who don't take sin seriously. We can't be deceived by those who say that God is only love and he accepts you as you are because that's not what scripture says. Scripture tells us that God is calling us to be more than who we are in our sinful state. When we declare Christ our Lord and Savior and follow him, we are made new and the Christian life is the process of becoming who we are now in Christ. Paul is telling us to be aware of those who, who lead others away and those who follow those false teachers because they will face the wrath of God. So how do we avoid this deception? How do we avoid this, what is going to only bring the wrath of God? It's by knowing who God is and the way that we know who God is is through his word. It's by being people saturated in the word, that we have to know God in the way that he's revealed to us. And yes, there will be questions. Yes, there will be things that we don't understand. But ultimately, God has given us in scripture everything that is sufficient for the Christian life. In order to live a a holy, righteous life, all we need to do is read scripture and follow what it says for us to do. And in doing so, 
we avoid the dangers of not walking or not being imitators of God. We avoid the dangers of having no inheritance in the kingdom of God, and we avoid the wrath of God. And that brings us to the second command that Paul has, walking in light. I've used 1 John 1 a lot because it's basically, or it's a similar message to what's in Ephesians 5, and John in that chapter uses a lot of the contrasting of light and darkness because this is the perfect imagery of who God is when we say that God is light, because light illuminates, it separates from darkness. It causes growth. We, we see that plants grow where there is light. And it, light exposes what is in darkness. We've all been to the movies, and when, when we go to the movies, at some point we're probably going to have to go to the bathroom, and when we come back, chances are it's going to be pretty dark in that room, unless you miss the whole movie. And whenever that happens to me, I prefer not to take out my phone. I just wait for their, if it's a dark scene, I can pretty much assume that the next scene is going to be light. And it's going to blind everyone, but it's going to show me where I'm sitting. And in that same way, God's light exposes our own sin. In that same way, God's light exposes the darkness within within us. Ephesians 5, 7, in talking about the people who are deceivers, who are the sons of disobedience, Paul writes, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He's shifting from the negative warnings to positive encouragement. It's that same imagery as put off and put on. He's saying at one point, we were, were darkness, not even in darkness, but who we were was darkness. It's the same imagery as Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our trespasses, and now we are alive. We were darkness, but now we are light. He's saying, do not become partners with them. Avoid these dark people. Avoid all contact with them. Don't engage or embrace their beliefs. And that imagery of partners is a, is a good one because partners work closely together. This isn't the group projects in high school where you had a partner who let you do all the work. This is people that work closely together. It's like, uh, it's like cops. They, they are partners together. They sit in their police cars together and they work closely with one another. It's that same word that's used in Ephesians 3, 6. Partakers. Don't associate with them. Don't align with them. Don't adopt their beliefs. Don't become partners with them. Instead, be imitators of God. And verse 8 tells us why. Because we are no longer darkness. In Christ, we are light. And there is no darkness in light. Walk as children of light. In 1 John 1, 7, John writes, if we walk in the light as he, as God, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Darkness is a life of immorality, impurity, and sin. Light is a life of purity and holiness. 
Walk as children of light is a theme that is throughout Ephesians, that we are to become who we already are in Christ. Paul doesn't say, walk as you will be a child of light. He's saying, walk as the child of light that you already are. He's contrasting who we were with who we are, living a life that bears the fruit of the Spirit. We already possess every benefit from the work of Christ. Though we haven't received those benefits fully, we already possess those benefits and need to lean on God to walk as children of light. And that brings us to the second point, that we walk as children of light by one, not joining those who are in darkness, and two, by displaying the fruit of the light. Verse 9 says, For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Once we believe God's, once we believe in Christ and declare him Lord and repent from our sins, God's power works in us to produce the characteristics that are found in God. Holiness, righteousness, justice, love, mercy, patience, and to bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Everything that fits these descriptions is part of the fruit of the light. And we know when someone is acting righteously. We know when someone or when we are walking as children of light, and we know when we're walking as children of darkness. If we feel that we are struggling with sin or we're being tempted by sin, by darkness, we need to go to the Lord in prayer because Ephesians tells us that God is a God who gives generously. He doesn't just leave it, say, okay, you're a believer, good luck out there. He gives us gifts so that we can live this life in a way that glorifies him, in a way that we can do what is pleasing to God. And that's the third way that we walk, that we can walk in light is by doing what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 10 says, and try to do what is pleasing to the Lord. Living life as children of the light means that we discern, we approve, and we figure out what is light. We have to be thoughtful in our lives. We can't just say that we're Christians one day and not even think about it ever again. This has to be at the forefront of our minds. An example of this is, is um, that God will give us wisdom whenever we ask for it. James 1 says that we just need to ask in faith for wisdom, and God, who gives generously, will give it to us. And with that wisdom, we can discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We also must know and study the scriptures. We can't know what's pleasing to the Lord without knowing what, who he is. He even tells us what is pleasing to him in his word. We can't know what is pleasing to someone if we don't know them personally. One commentator writes this, he says, As those united to Christ by faith, it is the goal of believers to please their Lord and Master in all circumstances, to live according to that which is good, right, and true. To live according to that which is good, right, and true requires the practical wisdom of applying these ethical standards to particular circumstances. What that's, what that's saying is that to live 
and to live uh, a life that is good, right, and true and glorifying to God requires wisdom to know how to apply this to our lives. It requires us to know who God is and what he has called us to do. And it requires us to know how and when to expose darkness, which is our fourth uh, way that we walk in the light, that we expose darkness. Verse 11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they, the sons of disobedience, do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. If Paul's saying that speaking of these sins, saying what these sons of disobedience are doing is bad enough, how much more offensive to God is actually engaging in them? What Paul's not saying here is that that we can't talk about our sins and confess our sins to one another because he's told us twice to expose and to rebuke such sin. But he's saying that that sin does not need to be verbally addressed because the Ephesians know what that sin is. What he's saying is, or what he's doing is he's emphasizing the utterly shameful and especially evil nature of sin. He's showing how shameful it is to be doing these things. For many, this time of quarantine and the stay-at-home orders has been a help spiritually. For me personally, I've, I've grown in my faith tremendously during this time. I feel like I have more time than I had before to read the word, to dive deep into scripture. And what it truly is, is that I'm more conscious of my time. I had the time before, but this social distancing has shown me how much time I truly have to engage in the word. But for others, this time of social distancing and quarantine has opened the door to do things, to do these shameful things in secret and have no one know about it. It's given many an opportunity to engage in their sin in darkness where no one will know. We're separated from everyone else. It gives us a chance to not even worry about someone else finding out because we're all distant from each other. We're all socially distant from each other. But what Paul is calling us to do is to expose these sins in secret. He's calling us to drag out our secret sins from darkness and expose them to the light. Sin, the sinful flesh will not want to do it. I mean, when, when I talk about dragging my sin into the light, I can feel the tension in my heart rising even the most saintly person has secret sin. And, and as we talk about this, as we read this scripture, every one of us thinks of our sin that we need to drag out into the light. Our heart rate speeds up and we start to sweat a little bit. It'll take effort, but we aren't alone. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has a great power as it is working. We can be confident that we will be forgiven when we confess our sins to one another. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful, not just faithful, but he is just. He is right 
to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Strength, all we need is strength and boldness to confess our sins, and that's given to us by the Spirit. There's a tugging on our heart when I talk about, or when we talk about confessing our sins to one another. We know that it's a benefit to us to confess our sins to one another, and as people who have, who are going to have sins confessed to us, we need to be ready to drop everything to talk and to talk and, and go in depth with that person in their sin. When I counsel some of our high school students um, through their struggles with pornography, I tell them, you can call me whenever you're struggling. I will drop whatever because I know how much courage and boldness it takes to do that because I've lived it out in my own life. We need the strength and the boldness to, to confess our sins to, to one, on, one another. And once that, that sin is exposed, the healing process can begin. The healing process can't begin unless we expose our sin. And this exposing sin leads to celebration because we're celebrating repentance. We're celebrating someone turning their life back to God. That 180-degree turn to follow Christ more fully. God's light and holiness, which wipes out darkness in our lives, is filtered through his grace. We don't just get wiped out because we're sinful, but in his grace, we can confess our sins, and he will forgive us. Because of the cross, we can expose our darkness to light. We can, begin, we can begin to overcome this sin together. It's not just a one single person project, but overcoming sin is a community effort because sin doesn't just affect the individual. Sin always affects the community. Sin always affects someone other than the one committing the sin. We're called to confess and overcome our sin in community, and there's no shame in confession because confession leads to holiness. Confession leads to purity. Confession leads to repentance. We need to drag our sin into the light, drag our sin before our fellow brothers and sisters, and confess it to one another. There is no shame in confessing our sins. We have to bring it before trusted believers because otherwise we won't overcome our sin. And when it comes to overcoming our sin, it will take accountability, but accountability, and this is something that I've had to learn in my own life, accountability in overcoming sin is not delayed repentance. That's how we view a lot of it, is it's delayed confession that we're like, at the end of the week with, with the person that's keeping us accountability, we then say, oh yeah, I, str- I did this, this, and this, pray for me. Accountability is one, being aware when you're being tempted and calling that person that's helping you overcome the sin. Shooting them a text and say, hey man, I'm really struggling, pray for me. It's also on the part of the accountability partner to be willing to answer that call, to be willing to respond to that text even if you're in the middle of something else. Helping someone overcome a sin is a high calling. It's not just hearing their delayed repentance. It's engaging with them in the midst of that sin. And Paul tells us the reason 
that we confess our darkness, that we confess our sin, because verse 14, anything that becomes visible is light. The darkness of sin is turned to light, because all sin is a distortion of something that God created to be good. All sin is a distortion of something that God created, and when light goes on it, it can begin to return to what God intended it to be. Cleansing our sin, of, or cleansing our lives of darkness, makes us light. And let's close with this hymn that Paul writes in verse 14. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's a two, two-fold call or invitation. For the believer, it's an exhortation to, to the disobedient and the wayward to wake up and rise from, your, from the dead. Wake up and confess your darkness. Expose your sin to light and know that Christ will shine on us and we will be forgiven of our sin. For the unbeliever, it's an invitation. It's a call to wake up and see Christ for who he truly is. To wake up and see that he died on the cross for our sins so that we may be raised, that he sacrificed himself on behalf of us so that we can be justly forgiven of our sin. And the result of the answering this call is that the risen and ascended Lord will shine on us And that signifies the empowering presence of the Lord that directs, encourages, sustains, and helps us on our journey of discipleship. What Paul's saying in this passage is that we need to become who God has already made us, who we are in Christ. That we need to walk as children of light, live as children of God, and imitate him, and no longer walk in darkness confess our sins to one another, another, drag our sin into the light, go before our small groups and tell them what we are struggling with, and to also be confident that God will forgive us because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It is never a mistake when we expose our sins to the light. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are, and and for the fact that you can forgive us of our sins because of the death of your Son on the cross. I pray that we would hold tight to this truth as we go before one another and confess our sins. I pray that you would give us the strength and the boldness to do so and equip us when others confess their sins to us. Thank you for who you are and the generous God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.